Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to find out more about this project, you can do so at the website lastborninthewilderness.com. A link to that site will be in the description of this episode. By going to the site, you'll find everything you would ever want to know about this project. You can find contact information if you want to send me a line. You'll find uh, social media links that this podcast is updated on regularly. You will find all the uh, various sites, streaming services that you can subscribe and listen to this podcast on. That includes iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Also, you will find in the description of this episode, as well as on the website, a link to the one-time donation page, which is the coffee page, as well as the podcast Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. By going to that site, you can make very small monthly contributions. Um, You are supporting me and my work. This is an ad-free and sponsor-free podcast. So if you want to at all contribute to the production of this entire thing, consider making very small monthly contributions through that Patreon page. You can do as little as a dollar a month, and by doing so, you'll gain early access to the content of these episodes. Um, You'll get the interviews and conversations before it is released widely to the public. At this point, I would just like to stop babbling on about myself, and we'll get on with the episode. Thank you. pretty good. I didn't expect that. I'm a little jealous. Are you giving him all the credit? That's... Oh, you know, that means the end of his job, you know. He did. Did he do it? Did our generals do a great job? Did our military do a great job? And you know, with way over a hundred missiles shot in. They didn't shoot one down. The equipment didn't work too well, their equipment. And uh, they didn't shoot one. You know, you heard, oh, they shot 40 down. Then they shot 15 down. They watched. Then I called. I said, did they? No, sir. Every single one hit its target. Think of that. How genius. Not one was shot. I speak with Dmitry Orlov. Dmitry is a Russian-American engineer and writer who regularly writes on various subjects related to the social and economic collapse that we are currently experiencing within the United States as well as um, in other parts of the world. He speaks on geopolitics, peak oil, and also how to adapt to a time of converging crises that are currently manifesting on multiple fronts. Uh, This episode was recorded only a few days ago, and um, the reason why I wanted to put this episode out so soon 
and uh, outside of my normal release schedule is because of what is discussed in this interview with Dimitri. Just very recently, uh, the Trump administration, the U.S. military launched, uh, apparently in alignment with the United Kingdom and France, they launched some missiles into Syria at a few different sites. Apparently, they launched them at or attempted to destroy a few sites where supposedly chemicals that may have been used in an, an alleged chemical attack on the Syrian people by the Syrian government would have been produced and possibly distributed. That's at least the story that is being told at this time, as well as a few other military sites were apparently uh, targeted as well. I wanted to get a very necessary but very unorthodox view of what is currently underway, not only in Syria, but on the broader international level. What is Russia doing, for instance, regarding this whole situation in Syria? And what is China doing? What is Turkey? What is the United States ultimately doing when it launches or attempts to at least strike some sites in Syria at this time? I wanted to get Dimitri's uh, insight into this because this is something that he's able to do in a way that is not really, I don't see it in corporate media especially, but I, I also don't really see it in many alternative news outlets as well. I, I don't see his perspective, and, and it's not even that, I think, of a controversial perspective. It's just so unique. I don't want to take anything away from what Dimitri has to say on the subject, so I'm just going to leave it there. I would just like to say real quick that Dimitri has some really interesting insights on his blog where he regularly reports on these subjects and, and discusses them. That website is cluborlov.blogspot.com. Uh, that is spelled C-L-U-B-O-R-L-O-V.blogspot.com. So go to that site. You'll, you'll get regular updates. He's, he also regularly updates an essay on his Patreon where you can, of course, go and support his work for as little as a dollar a month. So I will provide links to all this in the description of this episode, and I thank you all for your attention up to this point. On with the episode. You know, that means the end of his job, you know. Um, so I, it's been maybe two days ago, maybe a little less than that, um, that the United States in, uh, in a, uh, with, with the, uh, excuse me, with the United Kingdom and France um, launched some missiles into Syria and uh, tried to, I guess, take out, at least from their story, take out some of the chemical uh, uh, plants where maybe th these chemical weapons supposedly were made and used on the Syrian people by 
the Syrian government. Of course, I'm kind of just stating what has been said about it, not exactly what's true on that matter. Um, and, and I remember when this was happening, I, I personally got pretty worried. I mean, um, and I, I don't know how worried I actually should be about this because since this happened, uh, there hasn't been a World War Three. You know, there hasn't been an enormous response uh, from what I could tell from Russia or Turkey or any of these other major players in the region. Um, and, and reading your analysis on this subject has been really enlightening for me. Um, if you could give your insight into that as to why you think, at least, this happened, why the Trump administration or the United States military more generally wanted to do this and 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 and, and also Russia's response to this? Well, American presidents uh, generally try to become war criminals as soon as they enter office. Mm. It's, it's a traditional thing for them to do. Um, so Trump is really no different. Um, in terms of uh, launching these uh, various invasions and attacks, there have been various reasons for that. So, for instance, uh, Clinton's bombing of Serbia um, had a lot to do with Monica Lewinsky. Mm. Uh, the invasion of Panama had a lot to do with uh, uh, George Bush Sr.'s uh, wimp factor. Mm. Um, this may have a lot to do with uh, that um, uh, porn star that, uh, or prostitute or whatever that, that Trump seems to have bonked at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so sex scandals are often compensated for in, in exactly this this manner. There have been plenty of events like that, like the bombing of a, an aspirin factory in the Sudan by Clinton. Mm-hmm. Also had to do with with some disagreeable domestic issues. So that it's it's just a compensation mechanism. You know, some, sometimes a missile is just a missile, to paraphrase Freud, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes sometimes it's just a a phallic projection of the presidency. Mm. In terms of uh, reasons for this particular campaign, uh, you could say that it's sour grapes because the United States has lost Syria. Their entire plan of creating ISIS and and then pretending to fight it while actually arming it and equipping it and trying to get it to uh, destroy Syria as a country, that has backfired in the grandest possible fashion and has seriously weakened the United States position in the Middle East, if not throughout the world. In terms of the military merits of this operation, well, they they fired 103 cruise missiles. Mm. Um, They were quite quite careful not to aim them towards anything that uh, the Russians might have anything to do with. Of course, of course, the Russians were, you know, um, on full alert and and um, uh, by radar tracking all of the happenings. Um, so they, they knew exactly what happened. They knew how many missiles were fired, how many missiles were intercepted. Seventy one missiles got intercepted out of 103. Mm. Thirty two of them got through. Most of the missiles were actually aimed at airfields, one of them unused. Um, all of the um, all of the missiles that were fired at military airfields that were in use were intercepted. The ones that were fired toward an airfield that wasn't used 
a few of those, I don't remember if it was three or five, got through but didn't cause much damage. And then uh, the story behind bombing um, what was supposed to be uh, biological and chemical weapons research facilities. Um, well, first of all, I don't think Syria even has any biological weapons research. Um, it certainly doesn't have any chemical weapons research because it's it gave up its chemical weapons stockpile, uh, turned it over to the Americans, and the Americans destroyed it. And then uh, Syria was certified as free of from chemical weapons. Of course, we know that the, the various jihadi groups uh, do have access to chemical weapons, uh, which we don't know where they got them, but there, there are various stories circulating. One of the countries in the world that hasn't destroyed its chemical weapons stockpile is the United States. So the United States is one place to get chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. So in all, this was a gigantic embarrassment for the U.S., mm -hmm. which they again covered up by claiming that it was a wild success, mission accomplished, etc. Um, they said that none of their missiles were intercepted, so they're in just complete and utter denial. Um, as far as as far as uh, Russia is concerned, uh, it is notable that uh, the Americans were very, very careful to make sure that you know they wouldn't um, jostle the Russians. Mm -hmm. So um, none of the missiles were fired get, uh, fired towards zones that are are under Russian um, Russian control, uh, where the Russians would have fired back. They also were very careful, even though they had plenty of ships in the eastern Mediterranean, they didn't use them to, 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 to fire cruise missiles. Instead, they fired them from the Red Sea, and the missiles flew all the way across Israel, um, which is a little bit dangerous because these things, you know, these little tomahawks down to just fall out of the sky for no apparent reason. So they could have fallen on Israel. I'm not sure if Israel was all, all that happy about it. But the idea was that you know, the Americans can't be sure that, uh, say, the Syrians wouldn't retaliate by using um, one of those supercavitating torpedoes they could have gotten from, say, Iran mm -hmm. um, to sink uh, a few American ships. And that would have been completely unacceptable. So they used the Red Sea as the as the launch base. As far as um, French and British involvement, the British jets um, don't seem to have registered as having fired any rockets. So they, they they did fly sorties from Cyprus, but they don't seem to have launched anything. As far as the French, they seem to have taken off from France, loitered about in the sky and then landed again. And that was the extent of their involvement. Hmm. So the whole thing, you, you might say, is just a complete and utter farce. And it uh, basically shows up the fact that the United States is no longer a military superpower. It is also very notable that these tomahawks that cost, um, if I'm not mistaken, something like two million each, mm -hmm. um, or is it half a million? I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah, at least half a million each. Um, they, um, they, they can very easily be shot down by Soviet-era anti-air anti defense systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so uh, to say nothing of the, the newest Russian uh, air defense systems. So this is a really good thing as far as selling sur old surplus Soviet stuff, which the Russians are happy to do and to train people how to use them. So the, 
the market for, for those will be very robust. The number of countries that the Americans cannot bomb will increase. And of course, this is also um, really good for the, the newest Russian technology, S-300, S-400, which lots of countries, including a NATO country like Turkey, is eager to acquire. Um, so all in all, this was a, a basically a victory lap for, for Syria. The Syrians were jubilant after shooting down all of these American missiles and suffering no damage. There were four people hurt. There were no people killed. Uh, no facilities were destroyed except for a couple of empty buildings. And and the Russians are quite comfortable with this with this turn of events. Um, it could be an annual event, you know, they did this last year, same same story, fake chemical weapons attack. Um, no real substantial evidence ever turned up of it having been uh, anything but a hoax. And um, then they, they lobbed half as many missiles as this year, and a bunch of them got shut down, and nothing happened. They Actually, they, all they managed to do was destroy some very elderly jet aircraft that weren't even in use. And um, this year, twice as many missiles, many more of them shot down. Uh, uh, Syrian air defenses are getting much better. Um, so it's a reason for the Syrians and the Russians to celebrate. Mm. This is also, uh, almost perplexing because the fear, and I don't know how to quite describe it, but there's this general fear, at least here in the, within the United States, um, that this event could have led to a, another world war. It could have easily um, uh, spiraled out of control and nuclear weapons could have gotten involved and this, this whole thing could have blown up much bigger than, than what we've seen. But it's so strange because as you have mentioned, uh, the, the, the actual reality of the situation is so very different from the one that I personally was uh, seeing and experiencing on my end of things. You know, of course, I'm looking through a primarily Western lens um, on this, American lens. Um, and and I, overall, I don't want the United States, of course, to be involved. I don't want them to be bombing. I don't want any of this conflict to, to be going on any longer, um, ultimately. But what you just described, it just sounds like really elaborate theater. And it, it, it it's, again, it's, a, it's like a, it's a perplexing thing. I, I just don't know how to get my head around it. Like, what is the... What is the game here? Because as you mentioned, the United States, as you said, you said this in passing, but that the United States is not a, a world, uh, I can't remember how you stated it exactly, not a world military superpower any longer. Uh, sorry, what did yes. you say? Yeah. Yes, it's fading. Yeah, and, and I could sense that that's happening, but if anything, what, what, I would, what I would assume is that because the United States' influence is fading, that they would then resort to more aggressive military actions worldwide in order to maintain their presence, say in Syria or or wherever. Um, but but even even so, they're they're still fading from from the uh, the world stage in in that regard. How did this happen? I mean, it, again, as someone who is just perplexed, excuse me, perplexed by this whole situation, how did we get to this point where the United States is? launching these ineffective missiles into Syria and pretending that it was this really successful mission when it really wasn't? Well, basically, there's a, um, <clears throat> there's a political system in the United States that is 
captive to the defense contractors, captive to the congressmen in whose districts the defense contractors operate. And they they absolutely have to keep feeding the system, stuffing money into the system. But it's really all just corruption. Mm. All of these military bases around the world, all of these aircraft carriers that are sitting docks, they can't really be deployed uh, in, in any theater of operations where they might be sunk. And now there are multiple ways to sink them, that the Russians and the Chinese and even, even the uh, um, Iranians have. Um, so basically, it's, it's a, a money-burning machine. Uh, if you look at uh, the cost of American weapon system procurement versus, say, Russia, it's 10 times higher. So uh, on the one hand, the, the U.S. defense budget is over 10 times more than, than the Russian defense budget. But really what they get is, is same or perhaps less because there's, there's also a tendency to produce boondoggles because there's no political will to shut down uh, programs like, like the F-35, which is a, a horrible, horrible aircraft with just riddled with defects and, and really borderline useless. Um, you know, the, when, when Trump was running for office, he, he said that, you know, it's this program is really overpriced and should be canceled. And uh, I guess he's not doing that anymore, um, which shows that he can't do anything. It, see, in the United States, because the system is, is so, so rigged and so riddled with corruption, it doesn't even matter who is president. But as far as the military danger of escalation with a country like Russia or China that can uh, completely destroy the United States in about a half an hour, if it comes to that, I mean, just erase the United States, of course, suffering a great deal of damage in return. Um, basically, what happened in Syria confirmed my suspicion that there are people like um, you know, this the Secretary of Defense, um, who are, you know, professional military men, and as such, non-suicidal. Mm. There are some psychological tests that such people have to go through to confirm that they are fit to serve in those functions where lots of human lives depend on them being non-suicidal. And... Uh, so they're confirmed to be non-suicidal. And in fact, that's what we saw with this conflict in Syria. They knew that attacking anything um, Russian anywhere in Syria, it would be a borderline suicidal act. And so they didn't do it. In, in fact, they, they, very, they were very, very careful not to do it. Mm. Yeah, that is so, uh, so fascinating. So where do you think that this is going to to lead um and and i mean that i know that's a pretty broad uh question of course um i feel like the the chessboard as it were the the pieces are all moving and and we don't at least from my perspective i can't quite i can't quite get a good picture of what's happening because from your analysis that you just provided i mean that completely throws a wrench i would say into most people's perspectives on this whole subject. And I think that you're 100% correct, actually. I think that you are absolutely on, on point with everything you're saying. So, <clears throat> I mean, in your analysis, I mean, 
the, this this whole attack in Syria. Also, I think that's what's, what's happening with some of the United States allies, like Turkey um, and other regional players like that. Um, it seems that things are not... They're not as they appear on the surface. And... And so I guess, if, again, another this is a broad question, but what is the trend here, at least in regards to the United States and, and, and the uh, Middle East region in particular? The trend is to completely ignore the United States, uh, completely disregard it and not invited to meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really what's been happening. Um, there was recently uh, a meeting in Ankara in Turkey attended by... Uh, Putin, Erdogan, and and Syria and and uh, the Iranians, and uh, those three uh, are the key players in deciding Syria's future. Um, there was a a parallel track um, that that involved the United States, but it went absolutely nowhere. Um, and and this plan is actually working really well. Um, uh, the Syrian government is regaining control of its territory, and uh, it just uh, uh, got rid of a, a major um, terrorist uh, enclave that was close to Damascus. This was the the greatest victory since uh, it regained Aleppo. Mm-hmm. Um, and and right now there's basically one cauldron where uh, all of the remaining terrorists are getting kettled which is Idlib, which is basically get, going to get mopped up by the Syrians and, and the Turks. Uh, now, the Turks got involved because the Americans uh, hatched this ridiculous plan to make use of the Kurds in order to uh, gain lots of territory, including uh, non-Kurdish territory in, in, uh, in uh, northern Syria with the help of Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and Turkey didn't like that because Turkey sees the Kurds as a, you know, a restive population that has to be suppressed, has to be kept, kept under control, both on the Turkish and the Syrian side of the border. Iran also has its own Kurdish population. Uh, the Kurds, uh, as does Iraq. Um, in Iraq, the, the, the Kurds recently tried to uh, hold some kind of... Uh, independence referendum, uh, which typically for Kurds didn't take into account the fact that uh, no independent Kurdistan in in northern Iraq is possible without consent from, from Turkey. And Turkey withheld its consent, and the entire thing fell apart. It just, it's no longer mentioned. But anyway, the Americans and some Israelis thought that it was a really great idea to weaponize the Kurds in northern Iraq in order to get them to attack Syria. Uh, The Turks really didn't like this plan for very obvious reasons, and uh, they are now very actively involved to the point of invading Syria in neutralizing this. So here we have two NATO allies, um, the Turkey being the second largest military after the United States in NATO, and they're at working at cross purposes um, and not really even talking that much. Um, so Turkey is in NATO in name only at this point. It is clearly allied with Russia and with Iran 
in tackling the Syrian issue. Um, and it's a complicated problem, but all of these sides manage to ha find common ground and, and find common, common interest and cause. Uh, Russia specifically is extremely interested in destroying uh, all of these terrorist enclaves before they encroach on Russia's borders. Uh, there, there were at one point hundreds of thousands of terrorists uh, armed and equipped by the United States on the territory of, of Syria, a lot of them coming from for, former Soviet republics in, in um, all the stands in, in Central Asia and in North Caucasus. Um, and um, and it, few people know this, but uh, Russian was the second most popular, most used language within ISIS after Arabic. Mm. So there were a lot of Arabs there yeah. from all over Europe, all over the place. Uh, but there was also uh, a lot of, uh, of, of Russians, not ethnic Russians, but various other ethnic groups from the Muslim parts. Mm. Um, so the Russians were very interested in destroying them in Syria rather than in some former Soviet Republic or in Russia itself, and they've succeeded in doing it. They've they've very successfully obliterated them to a point where there are very few of them left. Mm -hmm. Wow. So in so, what do you think that the United States is going to? considering the fact that they're getting shut out of a lot of these negotiations, conversations, whatever you want to call it. What is the, I, I just think that this, the, again, this military or this, uh, this missile strike that they, uh, they attempted in Syria was, was a piece of theater. So what is the end game here for the United States? Obviously they want to maintain their power in the world. Um, but considering that they're being shut out and that even their allies are beginning to work with the Russians, um, I guess to fit this into a broader picture, I, I, I sense and, I, and I've known that the United States as an empire is crumbling. It is losing its influence in the world, and um, that's just the, the trend. So what does this mean for, for the United States more generally? I mean, do you think that it is possible that the United States will be so desperate to maintain its power that something truly uh, catastrophic could come out of that. I mean, obviously, uh, when I mentioned this new this this missile strike, I was afraid, and I think many people were afraid that this would escalate to some kind of nuclear confrontation. Is that at all a realistic fear to have at this point regarding the United States and its ability to main, maintain control over certain regions of the planet? Well, you see. Uh... The military is a rather blunt instrument. Mm. So the United States used its military uh, power to suppress anyone who uh, tried to uh, get rid of the US dollar as, as the, the medium of exchange in, in international trade. Um, so uh, for instance, Saddam Hussein decided to, uh, inter to, to start uh, selling oil in euros and got attacked. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, he tried to introduce a gold dinar as a, a way of trading oil, and, and he got destroyed. Uh, various other examples like that. What the United States generally does is 
make an example of a country that uh, decides to uh, forge its its own policy that excludes the you know the 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 U.S. dollar as you know from its position of primacy and its position of primacy is such that um, the United States can generate all the debt it wants and export inflation. So the dollar loses value as a result of this, but it loses value more slowly than other currencies. So this is a way for the United States to rob other countries. Uh, The United States runs a systemic trade deficit and a systemic budget deficit, which is now over a trillion a year. And um, it finances these deficits uh, by stealing, basically by stealing money through the export of inflation um, to various countries around the world. Uh, And it threatens them militarily if they try to disengage. So what do we have now? Can the United States threaten North Korea militarily? Well, no. Uh, it turns out that they basically were forced to stand down and realize that they have no uh, good military options against North Korea. North Korea has basically won. Um, uh, can they force Syria to do what they want? Um, well, they've been trying for a really long time. And this latest experiment of uh, lobbing lots of uh, cruise missiles at it has shown that it can't even frighten Syria, never mind actually get any reasonable result from it. There's absolutely no question of it frightening Russia or or China. Um, both of these countries are at a point now where basically if, if, the, if the United States tries to make trouble for them, they will make trouble for the United States and, and they will be quite good at it. Especially China, it has the absolute nuclear option because uh, it it holds a massive amount of U.S. treasuries, so um, it it can start dumping treasuries, or it can just stop buying them, and uh, then suddenly the U.S. trade deficit with China is not being financed, um, and and um, you know this will cause just a, a major financial dislocation. Now, in terms of fixing financial dislocations, the army is just not very useful. It's useful for scaring people. Uh, to so that they would get back into line, but if if they've stepped out of line already, have no plan uh, to go back in line, and and uh, to get back in line, and 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 are are prevent pre- preventing you from you know conducting business as usual, um, and you're short of cash, attacking people is not a very good way to fix your your financial position. So the U.S. military turns out to be completely useless in this regard. They can't really, you know, escalate against any of their major opponents militarily. uh, And whatever they do militarily is not going to fix the financial predicament, which is the eventual death of the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Man. Everything you're saying, it feels absolutely true. And I know it is true. Um, I think what happens with me is as I get caught up in the momentum of even the media that I, I, I appreciate to be alternative um, within the United States still seems to lack a lot of the nuance and, and, and the details that you just presented here. And that's, that's really fascinating. 
um, to, and, and it's really why I wanted to talk to you because you do have such, at least for me, a, such a unique but necessary perspective on this entire picture. So let me ask you this big picture question. And I know it's really hard to predict these type of things because obviously there's so many variables to consider. Um, but what is the long-term trend here? I know that you write a great deal about collapse. Um, you have you 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 do a great deal discussing that issue in particular. So, in regards to that subject, where is the United States on this? Where do you see? Not only uh, we talked about the world stage here and, and the presence the United States has on the world stage, but obviously collapse happens within the nations themselves as well. In particular, what do you see? the next, say, five or 10 years being like for the United States? Well, I think that there will be a a major shift, uh, probably having to do with finance rather than anything else, because the entire scheme, financial scheme in the United States, it has become entirely untenable. Uh, It is it is just one large um, uh, set of fraud and corruption. And it, it, it has to do with the, the political system being so corrupt, so gerrymandered, so so ruled by money and lobbyists, um, that nothing useful can be accomplished. So the United States is really far in terms of financial collapse. It, it financed, uh, it, it, it collapsed financially in 2008. And ever since then, um, it, it has been, uh, the recovery has been a mirage. Je- generated through basically debt that will never be repaid. It, it will have to be somehow hyperinflated away. Um, and, and so that is the end game, is, is about a hyperinflation. The dollar becomes uh, worthless. Uh, imports go away. Uh, the United States collapses into its own footprint, has to abandon its military bases around the world. It's not really heard from because, you know, it becomes one of those places where nobody goes mm-hmm. um, because it's dangerous and nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can persist in that collapse state for a long time because a lot of other things uh, that have been going on in the United States are extremely unhelpful as well. Um, the specific things that, that um, really you know, paint a, a frightening picture is the extent to which Social and cultural collapse have have proceeded in in the United States. To to see how far they've gone, you can go back a few generations, say from to the 40s or the 50s, and look at the high school curriculum from that time. Mm-hmm. Take a, a test that high school students had to pass in disciplines such as English composition or mathematics from the 1950s. Try giving it to a high school student of today. Um, they will be just completely lost, flabbergasted. And, and this has been uh, going on for a long time, but it really, you know, the process has really um, accelerated thanks to no child left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is really bad because um, lots of children should be left behind because they're dumb. There's no reason to teach them anything. But so the idea that you dumb down the entire system so nobody is left behind is idiotic. But what it has succeeded in doing is it dumbed down the learning to a point where uh, the educational system produces uneducated people who cannot reason, cannot think, don't understand logic, 
don't have very basic skills having to do with uh, numbers and with language. And these people are growing up and, you know, God help us all when they get into positions of authority. Um, in fact, you know, some people are saying that what we're, what we're witnessing now in the political system and, you know, in, in the media in the United States, the fact that everybody is talking nonsense mm -hmm. all the time, 24-7, mm -hmm. like complete stream of just absolutely wild nonsense, has to do with these children that should have been left behind. Uh, there, there's a lot of them. Well, that's a very, uh, I mean, that's, that's a very almost socially uh, Darwinistic view of, of that. Um, I'm not here necessarily to debate you on that particular point. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I really understand what you're saying. Um, if there were certain standards that had been maintained in this country, we wouldn't have had the the leadership that we currently have today and and i totally understand that point completely <laughs> um yeah i i, I well good i think there, yeah. there are a lot of differences between people in the world uh, absolutely and, I, and, I think uh, so lots of differences between groups uh races is a really bad way to look at it you know races mm -hmm. uh, cultural construct but if you look at uh various uh talents possessed by different groups there's wide variation yeah. and saying that everyone's the same and therefore should, should be given the same opportunities, you know, opportunities should depend on abilities. There should be a contest at the start or, you know, and, and the end of the process of education. Mm. Um, and, and there it's education is really, uh, you know, it has a lot to do with, uh, uh, teaching people to think and, and te maybe teaching them some skills, although that's not really edu what education should be about. But it should, there should be some, some, some emphasis on that. Uh, but, but really, the idea is to amplify people's talents, uh, give them full expression. Okay. But what happens when you are confronted with somebody whose talent is in, in herding pigs? Um, and you're trying to get them to sit in front of a computer all day. Well, that seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess uh, there's something to be said about that. Um, well, I I really appreciate your insight into the uh, into foreign policy, into the state of the world as it is today. Um, Dimitri, uh, where, where am I calling you from, by the way? I know you were saying Moscow, but but I don't think you're actually in Moscow. Are you in Moscow right now? I'm in St. Petersburg right St. now. St. Petersburg. Okay. Yeah, I know that you travel to Russia quite frequently, um, and I think it's 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 really. Uh, well, I was reading a piece actually before uh, that you had written before I um, called called you here, and you were describing that once you leave the Western world, so to speak, you leave the United States and Russia and uh, Europe. And you actually see Russia for what it really is. It is actually a very, it is not like what the Western media portrays it as. It, it's, um, and, and actually I, I talked with the guy, his name is, um, a few months ago, his name is John Mark Dugan. And he had started a whistleblower website here in, in the United States called PBSO Talk. And, um, he was a former cop for, for Palm Beach County, uh, police department in Florida he had witnessed all these corruption and, and stuff, so he, he left and he eventually started this whistleblower site. It all culminated in, with him eventually having to leave the United States, flee the United States, and he made his way to Russia. 
Um, and he regularly, you know, talks about how Russia is nothing like what the United States pro- projects it to be onto the, you know, the media. It, it's very different from what we, we think it to be. So I think that it's very important to maintain that context. And I think that you do a fantastic job of doing that. So I, I'm very thankful. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I try my best, but it's a, it's an uphill battle for for two distinctly different reasons. Uh, the first reason is that there's a, a, a an entrenched cottage industry, if you will, in the in the United States and in the West in general, to uh, basically spread lies about Russia mm-hmm. and make it make it out to be this horrible, dismal place. Uh, a lot of that has to do with. Uh, you know the the Cold War. This is the the kind of a hangover, Cold War hangover, mm. um, and and there there are literally people in in uh, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, editorialists who whose job is to write negative stories about Russia to amplify all of the negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know Russia has changed very radically. So. The Soviet period up to up to about 1990 was completely different from the 1990s, which is completely different from everything that ha- has happened in Russia this century. Mm-hmm. So Russia right now is unrecognizably different from the 1990s or from the period preceding the Soviet collapse, the 1980s, just completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, people behave differently. There are different there are different rules in place. Just Everything has completely changed, but that that the mindset that people approach Russia with is is kind of old. Um, another problem is just incredible ignorance because there was some effort. Uh, there was a uh, a field of study called Sovietology. Mm. It wasn't very good, <laughs> but but at least it was there. Um, and but all of these people when the Soviet Union fell apart, they they kind of lost their jobs. Uh, there was no replacement of of them by people who studied Russia, so Russia was this kind of it was treated in the 1990s as, you know, a has been, you know, a country that will will never rise again, you know, robbed and dismembered and and not really having a future and a population that is going extinct, uh, demographic crisis, disease, low life expectancy, high crime, you know, riddled with mafia, etc. And that was to a large extent true, but that pretty much ended by the end of the 90s. By by the year 2000, when Putin came into power, uh, Russia was on course to becoming a completely different place. But still, over the past 18 years, especially the, the first decade of the century, uh, nobody really paid attention to Russia at all, and that was actually good because it gave it gave Russia time. Now everybody's paying attention to Russia, and that is uh, that kind of attention is is um, in a sense unwelcome because now that Russia is rising, uh, people in the West are trying to figure out how to hold it back. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Russians don't really like that level of attention, particularly. Yeah. So so for those reasons, it's very hard to explain Russia to people in the West. But another reason, unrelated reason, why it's so difficult is that Russia is almost unfathomable to the Western mindset. It is so different in the way the minds of the Russian people operate. And 
the English language even lacks the words to explain what they're thinking. So if you take what the Russian people think and feel and try to translate it into Russian, into English, you end up with something that doesn't really make sense or doesn't really explain what's going on. Mm-hmm. When, when Americans in particular try to make sense of Russia, they resort to familiar metaphors. They try to compare it to things they know about back home, but n- th- none of those comparisons are accurate. So the best that can be achieved in terms of uh, an American understanding of Russia is something very imperfect and very inaccurate. And that, you know, that is unfortunate. But the good thing is Russia is very far away, you know. It's uh, it's way on the other side of the planet from the United States. Mm-hmm. And and so the United States can pretty much forget that Russia exists to a large extent uh, and go on its merry way, you know, collapsing uh, in all the various ways and let Russia get on with it. And, you know, that's what the Russians want. Um, the Russians, they don't really respect the United States. They no longer find it particularly interesting. They don't see in it any sort of a role model. Um, they're not excited to have improved relations with, with the United States. They pretty much just want the United States to go away. And if the United States would do that, then the Russians will be quite satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, that that yeah, just the, it's. I think that's probably what's the most offensive thing to the United States. Uh, obviously, the United States is a concept, but I mean more specifically the the people that are at the helm of this entire American thing, this project, whatever you want to call it, this empire. Um, they really want everybody to acknowledge their existence and for them to, for everybody to look up to them, whether it's through adoration or fear. And and both of those seem to be dissipating. Um, there's no more fear, and or there's less fear and less adoration than there was before. Um, quite a quite an interesting trend. And I think what frightens me uh, personally, just as an individual, is I'm in within the United States. I, I'm calling you from Idaho. Um, I see things around me ch- not changing super dramatically, but things are changing here. And and the general sense that I get from the culture from the people is that people are very anxious and and sense i sense a lot of confusion people don't really understand what's actually occurring in our own country there's not a lot of good information to 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 go on in that regard so it's part of me i I don't know what to do about it i i can't obviously fix it i don't plan on even trying to fix it um but i i do kind of want to figure out a plan to maybe get away from it in some way. I, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but um, everything you just said just makes me think of um, of escape, I guess. <laughs> and I don't know if I can, but um, it's something I think about quite regularly, actually. Yeah. Well, it, it's generally uh, quite possible. You know, the, the world is a big place and there are plenty of opportunities mm. just in lots of countries around the world. Um, there are lots of ways to 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 make yourself useful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in America, it is possible to gain fairly quickly gain various types of know-how. It is, after all, quite a developed country, and and take that know-how to just about anywhere in the world. Um, for instance, you know, in the United States, you can you can learn how to how to serve on a ship, and then you can take those skills to any place in the world where there's shipping. 
lots of lots of industry in the United States, um, you know, with with counterparts in other parts of the world that is always looking for more people to employ, which is not really the case in the United States. In, in the United States, the, the the employment picture, you know, the, the unemployment numbers are just completely fake. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the real unemployment rate is is huge. There's uh, close to 100 million people who are not cons- who are off working age, and are not wealthy, uh, and uh, are fit to serve in some capacity, and don't have a job, but they're considered not in the labor force. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that is a really um, you know dismal dismal result. The labor force participation rate is falling, but that's not considered unemployment, which is which it would be in most countries in the world. Um, you know, so so you can't really say that there are all those, you know, so many opportunities in the United States. For instance, half of the, roughly half of, of uh, college and university graduates in the United States never find a job having anything to do with what they were educated in. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the jobs that, that are available are, you know, basically just service jobs of various kinds. Um, so there, there, there aren't really the opportunities. And if, if you look at, you know, is the United States growing economically? Well, uh, yes, they managed to eke out some fairly dismal growth numbers, but they have to do with exploding debt. So a few years ago, it turned out for that it took four units of additional debt in order to produce one unit of GDP growth, which is pretty bad. It's but it, but it's gotten worse since since then. So basically, it's a it's an economy that's falling into a debt hole in order to sustain this mirage of uh, an economy that isn't shrinking. But in fact, if you take this debt into account and cancel it out, it turns out that the U.S. economy is shrinking steadily, and has been since 2008. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, Dimitri. Um... I've been talking to you for about, I think, 50 minutes at this point, and, um, and I think I've asked pretty much every question that I, I could possibly think of to, to, to ask you at this time. Um, and, and considering, again, the circumstances of, of how quickly we put this together, I'm so thankful that you were able to answer my call. Um, I really wanted to talk to somebody uh, to put this whole geopolitical picture in context and i think you did just that which which is so great and uh, so necessary in this time of confusion and 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 lots of i mean there's just so many variables and so many things that people don't even know what to look at and they don't even know how to make sense of the picture but i think you have such a good uh systems view that i think that your work is so incredibly valuable in that regard um and I would ask you uh, if you could please direct people to your website to where people can find out more about your work. I know that you've been the author of, of quite a few different books. If you could direct people to your work and your books and, and where people can find out more about you, that would be fantastic. Sure. Uh, go to http colon slash slash club, C-L-U-B, Orlov, O-R-L-O-V, dot blogspot, dot com. Okay. And you will find everything that I've done. Um uh, publicized there. Mm-hmm. I, I come up with two uh, two essays a week, in general, two blog posts a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, Tuesdays, uh, it's ju- usually public, and, and Thursdays is usually for my subscribers. 
who pay me the princely sum of one dollar a month mm. yeah actually i i was uh i just uh pledged a dollar a month to you just like an hour ago <laughs> so i am uh well i'm very good on you i'm so glad oh yeah yeah and i'm and and you know i wanted to read an article you had published and i'm like oh it's only a dollar you know and i'm on patreon too and i understand how important it is to support people for their their work so i'm more than happy to uh to throw a dollar at you a month so i can get access to your really important analysis and uh your 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 work so um yeah i will provide links to well, thank you yeah. patreon is yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Patreon is financially inefficient because it uh, burns through so much money in in finance fees mm -hmm. because of the small sums charged. But it is fairly efficient for both the Patreons and 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 the 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 authors. Um, and the sums involved are so tiny that the inefficiency. I don't think it matters that much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've been pretty satisfied personally with it, and I think it's growing. I think more and more people are starting to use it, and I think it's pretty efficient in that regard. So, um, yeah, I will provide a link to everything you just mentioned in the description of this episode. And, um, Dimitri, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude. But take it. <laughs>